welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Brian. I'm Ron. And this is our review of I Know What You Did Last Summer, starring Jennifer Love Hewitt, Ryan Phillippe, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Freddie Prince Jr., and Muse Watson for, like, two scenes. Written by Kevin Williamson, based on the novel by Lois Duncan, and directed by Jim Gillespie, released in 1997 on a $17 million budget, grossed over $125 million at the box office. Boys, I was at least 12 bucks for that, because I took a date to see this thing in 1997. So, what about you two? When was your first experience with I Know What You Did last summer my first experience was on home video vhs i rented it in college watched it with my current wife and uh, enjoyed the crap out of it because we like that kind of stuff so um yeah college i think after it shortly after it came out on home video in my case as with most movies of that time period it was all about uh, the premium channels it's either an hbo or showtime watch it on like two in the morning because I can't sleep kind of special. <laughs> well, this one I remember distinctly when it came out, not only because I went on a date, wasn't that grand, grand of a date or anything, but was a movie I, I knew was coming because I had gotten swept up in the scream thing that happened the previous December. And Williamson was a hot thing in Hollywood. Everything he touched was getting greenlit at this point. You know, everything he was doing, Dawson's Creek was about to debut. All this stuff was happening. He was going to start working on a Halloween movie, which I, you know, was real excited about at that point. And so this had been greenlit after the scream script had sold and everybody was so excited about it. So they, you know, they, they started putting this one together and it's another movie that does what a lot of horror movies still do to this day. They find a young cast with fresh faces that people know from TV or nowadays it would be like YouTube or the Disney channel or something like that. And we try to put them together. And I mean, it's neat to go back and look at something that mints people in a way, at least for, for films. Cause at this point, Jennifer Love Hewitt is on party of five. She's 18 years old. Um, Sarah Michelle Geller is, has just gotten Buffy. So it is airing while they're shooting this. So that's what people know her from. She's 20. Ryan Phillippe's 20. He's been on One Life to Live and had a small part in Crimson Tide as one of the sailors who almost drowned or something. And then Freddie Prince Jr. had been like on Family Matters and to Jillian on her 37th birthday and basically had tried out for everything and hadn't gotten a part. This was like his first big part because he had been up for stuff in Scream and Williamson liked him, didn't cast him in that, but put him in this. So it's neat to go back and see these people at this point and then you, you know you've got other faces you've got uh, Johnny Galecki who had been on Roseanne for years and was now making a film career before going back to TV and now people know him from Big Bang Theory you just need to go back and look at these people in this capsule of you know a movie now that's 23 years old you know by the time we're releasing this episode guys so it's, it's weird to think about how long this movie's been in the cultural zeitgeist I had no clue that Freddie Prinze Jr. was on Family Matters. I, he had like I, a walk-on part like for a couple of episodes or something, but he listed uh, in his page as like a, his, his big break, which is – that's not his big break, but whatever. Well, what was his big break? Because I don't remember this, him in anything the, until this. Yeah, yeah, this. This was it. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say. Uh, and he's horrible in it too, by the way. I'm <laughs> just going to throw that out there now. I just commented to my wife. I'm like, dude, he can't act worth a crap. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. 
But uh, I had obviously known of Je- Jennifer Love Hewitt because I was a fan of Party of Five. And then at the time, I was not watching Buffy. I became a fan of that probably in the third or fourth year that it was on. So um, I had no exposure to her either because I didn't watch her in the soap operas when she was a kid. So um, Ryan Felipe, I think this is the first thing I saw him in as well. So the only one I really knew out of this was Jennifer Love Hewitt, which is probably why I rented this movie (laughs) (laughs) because I'm a big fan. Were you a big Party of Five watcher? Yes, big time. It's funny because, uh, honestly, at that time period, I didn't know any of these people. <laughs> I didn't watch Party of Five. I didn't watch Buffy. I still haven't. I can't, couldn't tell you if I'd seen Crimson Tide. If I had, Ryan Felipe made no made no impression on me, and I had no idea who Freddie Prince Jr. was. So I was completely – I didn't know any of these people at all. <laughs> I didn't know who Ryan Phillippe was. I knew he was in Crimson Tide after the fact. I was just kind of laying out what he had done before this. I knew Sarah Michelle Gellar was on Buffy, and I had started watching Buffy kind of in the middle of the first season. And so I was aware of her from that. And from the trailers, I could tell she was definitely not playing Buffy again. And by all accounts from her, the reason she did the roles because it was definitely the damsel in distress versus the, you know, kick butt heroine. And I had watched enough Party of Five that I felt like I got it. And it was just, it was too mopey for me, man. Like, and in the nineties for me, that's saying something because I was definitely wearing the flannel and, you know, staring at my shoes all day too. <laughs> but I, it was just too much. I was like, I cannot deal with all that drama. So I had walked away from Party of Five, but I knew who she was. And moreover, I knew the setup for this was because was on every poster the guy that wrote scream and so i'm like okay we're gonna get the same kind of thing the trailer was very much a a big whodunit they're gonna be chased by somebody with a hook got it you know it it was gonna get my horror dollars no matter what at that point so i was down i mean i i was interested going into it i can remember going to see it and uh, the person i wanted to date with is a good dear friend so we, we went on the date and realized we don't need a date we're just friends but she did not do scary movies but specifically wanted to go see one with me because she knew it was my thing and so we went and saw this and i remember her reaction i'll never forget this walking out she's like is that supposed to be scary and i just laughed oh. <laughs> and i thought well that might sum Ouch. up um some of it uh, of i know what you did last summer and you know i got to thinking about it in the post scream horror world horror movies got out of trying to be scary and they just got into being very reverential and sort of self-aware and they were punny and they were kind of mix of horror comedy, but they didn't flip over into the leprechaun world of horror comedy so much. Like they, they, there was very much a self-aware bit of humor, but there was a lot of violence in them too. See, I always look at this as not a horror movie, more of a thriller slash slasher flick. I don't consider it a horror film myself. That's just me, I guess. But to me, this is a slasher movie. It definitely, to me, it definitely feels more like a thriller or almost like a, it's kind of like a dumb American giallo movie, except without the the breasts and without (laughs) all of the uh, technicolor blood. Yeah, and that's the thing. Williamson wrote this based off of a book that had been optioned. We'll talk about the book in a second. And he turned it into kind of a straightforward slasher flick. And then Gillespie said he got the script and he didn't think it was a slasher flick at all. He thought it was kind of a thrill ride with a morality tale at the center of it. And they purposely left it without any nudity and without 
you know, blood. Nudity partially because the all the actresses that were in this were like well, there absolutely was blood. not. There was a little bit, but not nearly as much as you could have. And there's and the one big scene at the end where there's blood that was a reshoot because the studio demanded. So that they they went a little tamer. And I think you're right to say, Brian, this isn't your typical horror movie. I don't even know if it's your typical slasher. Maybe it like the terms that, you know, the original Halloween didn't have a ton of blood in it either. But, you know, Friday the 13th, that's a bloody movie. You know, those those things were part of the world and had come and gone. And, I mean, you know, the year before this, you know, you had... Uh, all kinds of bad things going on with horror movies. So Scream had resurrected that, and that's kind of a bloody movie if you go back and rewatch it. This one's the other side of that coin. I mean, there's plenty of blood, I think, in this to make it that. Also, you didn't mention Anne Heche is in this movie, and I think she's going to be a little pissed about that. <laughs> I I think she will probably not care that I didn't mention her <laughs> two days of work um, <laughs> that you opened this film. Well, that's what she called it, was two days of work to try to be, quote, creepy. And so it definitely that's, was creepy. Yeah, so. Well, you know, job. If, if you go back and watch Antes's career, this is not a far stretch. This this is good <laughs> casting. Like they were looking ahead, but you, you know, it, it's it's weird that you you called this uh, a slasher movie, Brian, because to me it's like two edits away from being a Lifetime movie. <laughs> wow! <laughs> like if you just yeah. cut out the the Johnny Galecki's death scene and you cut out some of the blood that they they added in the end in that second round of reshoots or in the round of reshoots, you are basically, you've got like a lifetime thriller. Considering the source material, that's not a far stretch. And Brian, you took the bullet this time and actually listened to the audiobook of the Lois Duncan YA novel. I know what you did last summer. So do tell, what did you gain from that experience? I thought the book was actually really good. Um, it's, I find it fascinating because nobody dies other than uh, the kid who is a grown-up in uh, in this one, or a teen, I should say. Uh, he's the only one who really dies in this book. Uh, everyone else survives to the end, and I thought that was kind of a cool little twist that they did there. But I thought the book was pretty good, and I think that they did a fairly decent job of of using the important parts of the book in the movie, changing a few things here and there. There's some scenes where uh, they go to the house and and they meet the sister, which is the same. Uh, but instead of uh, it being Helen and uh, Julie, it's Julie and Ray who go there. Uh, so that was a little interesting tidbit there. Same premise, though. Car breaks down, need to use the phone, blah, 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 blah. Learn a little bit more about things, what's going on, uh, all that kind of stuff. There's just little pieces in the book that are changed slightly in the movie, and then obviously death added to the movie to make it a little more intense. But in the book, everyone survives. Everyone gets attacked, but they all survive. They're being chased by a stepbrother of the deceased, or half-brother. I think it's actually a good book. Ah, okay. So there's the difference. So, But it's neat to hear, though, that they stayed relatively close to it. This was one I didn't know about until, of course, years later. I didn't know about it until half, you know, many years later. And I actually bought it for like a dollar to put on my Kindle and have just never read it. And we were getting ready to do this. You're like, well, you know what? I've got some audible credits. And I said, well, I'm glad you're going to waste them for the show. So thank you. Ah, it was actually a really good listen. So if you're interested, read it because I think you might enjoy it. The funny thing is the director said that like all the young women on the set had all read it. Like Sarah Michelle Geller read it, Jennifer Love Hewitt read it, Bridget Wilson had read it, Anne Hesh had read it. All of, all the women of the in the cast had read it, and he hadn't. And so he thought that well, it, it at least resonated with the people that were playing the age of, which I thought was kind of neat. 
Yeah, well, it's a young adult novel. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's for teenagers. Um, and, yeah, I mean, that, they kept a lot of good things from the book in there. Like, Helen's sister just hates her, which is in the book. And it's kind of a fun little tale. They kind of put some suspense on her being uh, the problem or the person that's attacking them, things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, they try to do that but, here. but Well, they do. They try to. But, um, yeah. So, I don't know. I thought it was a, a good read to, or a good listen anyway for me. But I think it, if you wanted to read it, I think it's good. And I right. think they use a lot of the good stuff in the book in the movie as well. Oh, well, that's cool. So, well, I think we've danced around it enough. Ron, I'm going to toss it to you. Tell us a good plot summary for I Know What You Did Last Summer. All right. I'll do my best. Four friends are enjoying their last 4th of July before heading off to life after high school. One couple, Julie... That's Jennifer Love Hewitt is headed off to college. Ray, the male of that couple, that's Freddie Prince Jr., is pursuing his writing career. The other, Barry, that's Ryan Philippe, is going to college on a football scholarship while his girlfriend Helen, Sarah Michelle Geller, is headed to New York to follow her acting dreams. Everything goes awry when the group is involved in a hit and run. They leave an injured stranger for dead and swear never to speak of this to anyone again. A year later, having gone their separate ways, the group is brought back together when they start receiving notes from a stranger claiming, I know what you did last summer. Julie did some investigating and is convinced that they killed David Egan, who was said to be on the road mourning the death of his fiancée, who was killed in a car wreck involving him a few years back. The notes turn into attacks by a person dressed in a fisherman's slicker wielding a big hook as a weapon. The fisherman eventually dispatches Barry and Helen, along with a few other townsfolk, until it's just Julie and Ray who are left. The two learned the person they hit was actually a man named Ben Willis, who had killed David Egan in revenge for the death of his daughter, the fiancée Susie, and was escaping when Barry's car hit him. Julie and Ray fight with Willis, and his hand gets caught in some ropes and is cut off before he plunges into the water, though his body is never recovered. And in a stinger scene, we see the fisherman jump through a glass shower door at Julie, who is back at college, as the screen cuts to black in the classic Friday the 13th ending. And that is a good plot summary, I think, for this movie. If you haven't seen it in a while, it's kind of a simple three-line, oddly enough. And we open up with a, a cool thing for me now, living now in North Carolina. I remembered when the movie started, yes, this is set somewhere on the coast of North Carolina. I live on the other end of the state, but I looked it up. Southport's a real place. They shot a lot of the movie there, but not this coastline. Um, (laughs) My my wife said, hey, is this what that really looks like? Because she hadn't been there either. I paused it, looked it up. I was like, no, that's California. Uh, So (laughs) not quite uh, the, the coastline you'd get here in the Carolinas, but a cool opening scene. And Brian, I know for a fact, because we've had this conversation before, you're a huge mark for this song typo negatives cover of the seals and croft summer breeze it's amazing i must say i was singing along with it and my wife chuckled at me she knows the seals and croft version not necessarily the typo negative version but i did my best peter impersonation and sung in my deepest voice possible it was glorious i am a big fan of their cover of neil young's cinnamon girl yes off of the october rust album good yes 
Very good. I would not have known this band was a thing until I met Brian <laughs> all these years ago, and you introduced it because we were having a conversation about this movie to me. Like, oh, I'm a huge you know fan of this band, and so I listened to a little bit of it. Not really my thing, but funny enough, my wife knew this version of Summer Breeze and not the other one. Um, so, yeah. which my wife not the goth rocker. So I don't know where that you know came across her ears, but she loved it. She was like, oh yeah, I love this song, and I was like. How do you know this? You know, it's because it's not, it's not her fair generally, but I guess in the nineties, that was her, her, her bag. Um, if you, if you haven't listened to black number one, Jay, you really need to just take the leap. That's the most famous typo negative song. I'm going, yes. I'm, I'm writing that down now so that I can, I can indulge later on. I will say it is an ominous thing. And if you haven't seen it, folks, you don't know what we're talking about. Imagine like the deepest possible voice singing this beautiful summer love song while this <laughs> grungy sludgy guitar goth rock is going underneath it and you have this gorgeous coastline this beautiful sunset and this totally gothic dark depressing thing laying on top of it and you get the motif that jim gillespie and kevin williamson wanted you to have for this movie and i gotta say it's a good opening. You've got a kid sitting on the side of a, a cliff there. He's drinking beer. He's flipping this little charm bracelet that makes this little chime every time he spins it around with somebody's initials on it. We don't yet know what's happening, but we know that there's lots of mood here. And I will give this movie this much that they set up a great mood to start with. I would agree. I think that uh, going in, that, I mean, the typo negative sound, that, that real slow, sludgy uh, sound really sets things up really well. And you see him, it looks like he's contemplating killing himself is, is what it looks like. He's, he's deciding whether or not he wants to jump off this huge cliff. And um, that's a nice, ominous song to be playing when somebody's <laughs> looking like they're going to do that. But it definitely sets the mood right away as we see just a real depressing situation from the, for this guy uh, to get us moving through here before we get to the scenes with the students around. Yeah, it's a real contrast that's coming up because in the background you see like fireworks going off, right? Mm -hmm. And Southport, North Carolina is known to have this huge 4th of July festival. I don't think they call it the Croker Festival, but that's what it's, is happening here. And we see your small town theater beauty contest going on. <laughs> and it's basically, this is a, an interesting way to intro our characters. And I, I want to say I've seen this so many times because this is like a Williamson thing. And Ron, you're the writer here, so I'm kind of leaning on your knowledge to, to check me on this. This is how he likes to just throw a lot of people at the screen at once. You get your main personality types from everybody just in the first few lines of dialogue that they all have. Well, it is technically, once we jump into the main characters, it's like an in-media res beginning. Because we're not coming into the beginning of the beauty pageant. We're coming in at the very end. Mm -hmm. And he, he, he does a really good job of efficiently establishing just who these people are and what types of person they are just based solely on like, you know, you have a certain expectation of what a pageant beauty pageant girl is going to be like you from the kind of greasy bangs that she's got. You get an immediate impression of what Jennifer Love You it's going to be like, you know, you've got the, the crooning loudmouth boyfriend in his his uh, football jacket. And then you've got the uh, the other guy, Freddie Prince Jr. You get a pretty good, like, immediate sense of, okay, this guy's a jock. This guy's just kind of a hanger-on. She's kind of like the mousy smart girl because she's got dirty hair. And obviously the beauty pageant girl is going to be like the I think I'm better than everyone type of chick. Who had the, like, the patent 
pageant answer, like, I'm going to, you know, become an actress to serve the, the country or some nonsense, right? <laughs> I was like, well, and, but at some point, one of the characters, I think it may have been Philippi, looks at Jennifer Love Hewitt like, did you write that for her? <laughs> yeah. Like, wow. Okay. So, but which is funny because you want to lay that kind of personality on Sarah Michelle Geller, which you realize is that Julie's just like her. She just doesn't have the confidence. Like she thinks the same, or at least she can, she can think like that. And so the fact that they, we, we established that the two girls are really the close friends and the guys just happen to be dating the girls. That's why they're hanging out together. Oh, for sure. I think that's exactly what we're we're getting out of it. So um, I, I kind of like the quick intro to them. And then, of course, uh, it's the end of the school year, right? The school's out, I suppose. It's the 4th of July. So they're getting ready for plans to go on to their next stage in life, college. And I think it's kind of interesting. This is kind of, I think, supposed to be their last hurrah together before they go their separate ways. Is that how you read it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, well, two of them are definitely going to college. Barry and 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 Julie, General Hewitt and, and Ryan Philippi are going to the same university in Boston somewhere. He's going on a football scholarship. She's going on a full academic ride. Ray's going to New York to be a writer, like in I guess the Greenwich Village or something like that. And uh, Helen uh, Sarah Michelle Geller is supposed to be going to join like Guiding Light or something like that, which I think is funny because I believe <laughs> she was on Guiding Light at the time. And so it's it's sort of a she's going to be the actress in New York. So two of them are sort of following artistic dreams and the other two are going to college though i don't i guess barry's not much of a scholastic person i don't think we're supposed to get that yeah, thing. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> so so if Rand philippe is going to college in boston he would have to be going to like bu right bu or, or boston BC. college a bu or bc one or the other he's too small to play at bc yeah so he has to be at bu right i would think so I, I don't get the impression that he's smart enough to be in like an ivy league school but see the thing but is, B, is. B, B, BU is like a not is like a big time school. That's almost an Ivy League school. So I don't yeah, I don't know where he him as a football player, I don't get. Him as a menacing, mean asshole boyfriend is why he got the role. Because he could be intense. And Freddie Prince Jr., who is six two and probably could look like a football player and played athletes in later in his career too is too every man he's too nice of a guy he's also a bad actor but ryan Phillippe could be mean right and that's why he got that role now to be fair he's a bad actor in this he is better in other things true but he's terrible in this like what yeah and, and ryan <laughs> Phillippe is he's great in the scooby-doo movies freddie prince is freddie prince is yeah yeah. Uh, uh, yeah he's great at playing a dumbass but well, yeah, nobody said he was playing it. You don't have to be a good actor to pull that off. I mean, look at Keanu Reeves. I will say this about Freddie Prince Jr. Many years later, he ended up on a season of 24, and he was very good on it. And so I thought, okay, right. he, he turned into a good actor. He was, he was fine. In this, he's supposed to be the working class boy who's hooked up with the rich kids. Cause it's the thing we'll know about all of these three kids. Like they come from affluent backgrounds. We see it in their lifestyle and what their choices are and where they're going in life and stuff. And he, he doesn't even know who his father is. We find out later his father was a fisherman. Maybe he's a working class guy who's kind of hooked up into the, the upper crust of the, the school somehow. And so he's definitely hanging on. I think you, you nailed it. He's definitely the hanger on her. They they do they do a really good job of establishing him as like, hey, this is our poor friend. Right, exactly. <laughs> look, look at this act of charity we're doing. He also might be the town minority. We're not sure. Wow. I don't think they knew that at the time, but yeah. He's the, he's he's our town Puerto Rican. 
I mean, he is, he's, he's dating, you know, the smart, pretty girl in town. All right. Um, who again comes from a, a well to do family. Um, but are they, friends. but are they, but are they trying to downplay, um, her prettiness? Are they trying to make her look like mousy yeah, and boring? So. Oh, big time. Yeah. I, I think they're doing that whole, that whole smart girl who finally takes her glasses and, you know, jacket off and all of a sudden, oh, she's gorgeous, which was also a movie Freddie Prince Jr. was in. Cause I mean, maybe it's just hindsight, me judging the fashions of 1996, but her really thin bangs just look awful. Yeah. My <laughs> wife commented on this as well. She's like, that's, I'm glad she didn't do that. That's bad. It's like, yeah. That's, that's, Cause they look like greasy as hell. I mean, I think like, they're supposed to, right? Especially when she comes back after the year off in a minute. Like she, they, like they basically white pancake makeup her to death, which, you know, in, in modern resolutions on television, you can see it like it's an inch thick yeah. on her face. And then they've just greased her hair out. Like she didn't wash it for three weeks or something. Well, she's disheveled. So yeah, I guess that's what it looks like when you're disheveled. But even then, like there's a definite contrast between her and Helen, though we see them after Helen wins the Croker Queen thing or whatever. They're walking through the crowd together. By the way, Elizabeth Rome comes across the screen. So say hi to the Handmaid's Tale um, as it comes across <laughs> the screen in the early role. And and uh, she's also a foot taller than both of these actresses. And then, you, But you get the sense that her and Helen are friends. Like That's why I, I was laying out the dynamic and why yeah. I found it interesting is Kevin Williamson wrote – the the scream thing was really about Sydney, you know, and how this girl and her friends react. And he is good at writing like female friends, which is not an easy thing for anybody to do. Um, and I think what he set up here is that these two girls are friends and their boyfriends just happen to get brought along because that's just what you did in high school. But otherwise, Ray and Barry would not have been buddies. They didn't play ball together or something like that. They didn't even especially seem to get along together. Yeah, they, I mean, it was very much like it was. You're just here because you're dating her. Was the way Barry kind of treated Ray. You got there was always a lot of friction when you had the two of them together. Yeah, and can I say right now, this that's one of my big bones to pick with this movie is that there's a real interesting thing they could do with this, and that they don't. That involves the Ray character, and I'll I'll talk about it more as we go through. But that they, they're underlining the hell out of it, and then they never pay it off for any reason, except just to set up another red herring. Well, also Barry doesn't seem to like. Julie either. I don't think Barry likes anybody. I think Barry, yeah, Barry doesn't like his mom. So I mean, yeah. it, it's not a shock. He, yeah, he's dating Helen because she's the prettiest girl in school, probably, and he's the quarterback, so he's got to. Uh, but yeah, I don't think he likes anyone except for alcohol and sex. Right. So I mean, and we see it now. We get them on the beach together. We tell some urban legends because that's what we do, right? And and Kevin Williamson will cop to the fact that he put this in there because he wanted to underline that, like, here's the urban legend. Now here's a quote real thing that happened that involves some of the same stuff, the foreshadowing. And I, I want to ask you, Brian, is there anything like this in the book at all? No, mm. no, the book it doesn't go through any of this pre-accident uh, stuff at all. Like none of it. They explain that Helen is some kind of a uh, like beauty queen winner who becomes a news anchor because of it. It's really weird. Um, and Barry's the quarterback guy, and Ray's a fisherman. He actually leaves and goes fishing after the accident and comes back a year later. And, um, yeah, so they don't go through any of that stuff to set this story up. It and just gets right into it. 
And according to Williamson, that's what really attracted him to some of this. His father was a commercial fisherman in North Carolina, so he wanted to ride it around that. I think that's why you see Ray get the story arc he gets is Williamson doesn't want him to be the bad guy because he yeah, he got a lot of respect for his father and he just wanted him just to be an everyman. And they definitely cast that in the role here. But I think we all agree, like the guys would never be friends with each other. It's debatable as to how the girls are even friends with each other because I would wonder they how they would. Together. Is that it? They, they, yes. they, it's such they, a small town. They run in the same circle no matter what. No, they grew up together as friends. They've been friends since they were little. She drops that line later in the movie. Ah, okay, okay. So, yeah, yeah, that's why. Okay, so they're they're partying it up on the beach because you know we have to have our you know beach scary stories and then we all have sex and then we're going to drive home. And But I want to say this, that like the only time I'm going to side with Barry this entire movie is when they're driving home and uh, Ray and Julie had this mope rock going on up in the front seat. And no, like, we're <laughs> not doing off. that. Let's turn on some, some pseudo nineties punk rock and let's have some fun, you know? So he's, he's goofing it up and whoops, we hit a dude or something. They didn't know yet. Could have been a deer. Having having been someone who has hit a deer and it flew over the top of my car, I can tell you how disconcerting that is. Like it's very like you very much feel like you have you've hit a large creature. I've hit two deer in my life. Three deer actually. Two of them did some major damage to my car. One of them I just clipped and sent tumbling. But I love the line because this is something I know about. But I love the line of if we hit a deer, where's the body? Well, the deer can run for up to five miles after being hit before it dies. Just so you know, little tidbit there. I think the song you're talking, you're referring to, Jay, is an off is an Offspring song. I think so. Yeah. It, it, the, again, the late '90s resurgence of somewhat punk rock. You know. Yeah, you've so. got uh, there's an Offspring song. There's a Boston song on here later. It's a there's a Southern Culture on the Skids song. It's a pretty great soundtrack. Just oh no, know. this soundtrack is an encapsulation of late '90s music, like almost completely. Es- especially that. Uh, <laughs> Toad the Wet Sprocket cover of Hey Bulldog you get later in the college scene. Yeah, you get that. You get an Our Lady Peace song, Clumsy, in here. I think so. one of the party scenes or something. I love that song, by the way. Can I just say how apropos it is that the the Offspring song title is DUI? (laughs) I think that's exactly (laughs) why it's in that spot. (laughs) uh, The thing you got to learn about Kevin Williamson scripts is that it's, it's all built off of the and I don't know if he's ever admitted to it, but he must have just been totally in love with the way that like the Back to the Future script is written, where everything is there for a reason and it pays off to something else, except for the Ray character, which we'll get into. But he he doesn't just lay stuff in there for nothing, you know. Like he has influence on all of this stuff, and he had a good bit of influence on this. And look, the people producing it weren't idiots either. Stokely Chapin's a great horror producer of the late '90s. She knew what was cool. And she had just come out and doing a ton of stuff and would do like Freddy versus Jason and a lot of other things that you know, some of which we've reviewed on here. So she knew how to play stuff in here that this, this movie is built by a studio to make a hit and not spend a ton doing it. And $17 million on this kind of horror movie was a lot of money in 1997. Like people did not put that kind of money in a horror movie unless Jamie Lee Curtis was coming back 20 years later or something like that. So they, they clearly knew what they were doing here with their cast and with everything that's in it. And the DUI song is just on top of it. But of course it's all to set up the big thing. Cause Julie finds the boot to the side of the road. And now we know we've done you know, damage to somebody and we're all freaking out. And our good friend, Max, Johnny Galecki, probably the most sinister thing he's ever done in his life is this role. Where he tells <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. To wipe that grin off his face. And I'm like, man. And what I realized then is they should have called this movie, me, man. 
Yeah, there's that, and I'll I'll kick your quarterback college ass and all that stuff. I, I realized they should have just called this movie I Know What My Red Herring Did Last Summer, because everybody that's not the main cast, and even half of the main cast, are the red herrings of this movie. Well, that's what you do, though, when you have a, a suspense or thriller movie. you got to try and make it look like everybody could be the bad guy, right? That's the whole point. Yeah, you definitely need to um, sow the seeds of the red herring early and often. One of the reasons why Barry is, is such a jerk to everyone, they're establishing pretty early on that he could just randomly start killing these people because he's not a very happy person. He's an angry little man. Which is funny, though, because Johnny Galecki is smaller than he is. So, I mean, you're like you're the <laughs> smallest do, right? people are the, are the red herrings in this movie. The tall people are sort of standing over to the side. Angry little man syndrome. It's a real thing, man. Yeah. yeah they're showing it here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, with Barry, I really definitely feel like there's some Napoleon complex going on. Right. You could definitely say that when he comes back a year later and he's like a, a huge drunk and Julie says, nah, it's a big campus. It didn't really see many. I'm like, well, clearly the football star thing ain't working out. Like he was, maybe he was a big deal in 3A North Carolina high school football, but he goes up to Boston and it, eh, he's, he's warming the bench. You know, like, who's that guy? Right. Okay. So Ryan Philippe in real life is 5'9. Which a Hollywood five nine means he's probably about five seven in, in, in on street clothes. Right. So Ryan Philippe as a quarterback, even for like nineteen ninety six, he is an extremely undersized quarterback. You didn't see a lot of like six seven quarterbacks in the the mid nineties, but man, he is tiny. He the only quarterback five under six foot or under like five five nine and under that's ever been noteworthy is the guy that the college football best quarterback trophy is named for Davey O'Brien. <laughs> that's when the average height of humans was like six feet. So at I least America. I went and I Googled quarterbacks under quarterbacks five, nine and under, and it was a bunch of never heard of them and Davey O'Brien. Wow. See, and, and Drew Brees is considered small. Yeah. He's six, six feet, feet tall. Yeah. He's six yeah. feet tall. Russell, Russell Wilson is technically the shortest, the shortest starter in the league as of this recording. Because five eleven, he, he's five eleven. I think Kyler Murray is right around that same run to the, the quarterback from Oklahoma that Arizona drafted. So yeah, they're the shortest ones. And then you know, I live in Carolina. Cam Newton's six six. You know, so I mean, he's a defensive end playing quarterback. So yeah, <laughs> I I'm looking at this and I'm going like, I could buy Barry as like a slot receiver. You know, even in the nineties, I don't rem- like even my high school and we weren't any good. Our quarterbacks were tall guys. Like I just. I just can't. You it's hard to buy him. As Why did they have to make him a quarterback? I know. I guess it's because we want the stereotypical jock thing. But like honestly, nowadays if they recast this, he would be like a badass lacrosse player or something, right? <laughs> so yeah. I mean, because that's a violent sport, by the way. So I'm like, I can see that. So. Yeah, like the the quarterback for the team uh, for my high school team in in 1999, who won the state championship, he was still like six three, and he was like a backup in college. Yeah, it's it's hard to buy. It's also hard to buy later that like his his workout is kickboxing. I don't think I'd let my quarterback do anything to get damage himself like that. Like if he wants to yeah, run, the- yeah, but no, you can't you cannot hurt your hands or your feet, you idiot. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can go. You can it's start out with some parts. light. Start out with some light boxing, then you can uh, juggle dynamite. 
<laughs> yeah, I get it. It's cardio, right? That's what Lit we want to show. This guy's ripped. He's cardio or whatever. The problem is, is anytime you stand him up next to Freddie Prinze, you realize how much smaller he is than him. And that's it's probably why Freddie Prinze is often like sitting down or he's like a deck below where they are because he's, he's so much taller than the rest of the cast. So. Or when or, you punch him, you're walking uphill. Yeah, <laughs> to there get you him. Go. Yeah, right. So camera angle, man. Yeah, yeah or, or like I've noticed that a lot of uh, when Barry and in, um, Ray are in the same scene, Ray will be behind the group to make him yeah. smaller. <laughs> yeah, like down yep. the hill coming up. Yeah, which I think is also because he's supposed to be behind all of them socioeconomically too. Maybe maybe I'm giving the movie way too much for that, but. I think there we, there we are. But anyway, we 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 spent a ton of time on the opening here and setting up these characters. We got to talk about like what they, they decide. We, you know, Barry's the one's like we got to dump the body. Like the the fish will come along, they'll eat it up. Nobody will know what happened. He's dead. There's nothing we can do for him, right? And we've got a lot of I don't know about this Barry and you know everybody's back and forth. And I did I I will give our actors credit. They did a good job of kind of selling me on the immediacy of having to make that decision and then what that would. What would you process like? What would you do? Because Ray at first is like, no, look, I can't get out of this like the rest of you can. I've got to do it. But when they get down to the dock with the dude, he's like, Barry, I can't do it. Like he's just frozen up. And it's ultimately Helen that ends up helping him pitch, uh, you know, the guy into the into the drink. And I, I did think that was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think they did a good job of of the severity of the situation and the fact that, you know, having Julie be the only rational one to say, we can't, we can't do this. You can't live with yourself. And everyone else is kind of going, well, I don't want to ruin my life. Not thinking that something like that could ruin it anyway. But, uh, yeah, I thought they did a pretty good job. And I like the fact that it's Helen who's like, oh, screw it. I'll help you get him in. I think that's kind of a good character for, uh, for her because she is basically going with whatever Barry says. And in the book, she does the same thing. Okay. She definitely seems to be kind of like the I, – I hate to go back to the Lifetime movie thing, but in a Lifetime movie, Barry is clearly beating the crap out of Helen. Are, are we clear on that? Oh, yes. Because at certain points, she comes across almost like an abused girlfriend. I mean, she does. I mean, and later on, she plays it almost like she's the divorced ex-wife because she's chain-smoking. You know, she looks like hell, and she has to go <laughs> see him for money or help. You know, right? It's this, uh, right. Uh, you and I are in the same place, Ron, with this Lifetime movie. I don't think Brian watches enough of them, but if he did, he would know. I don't watch any of them, so I'm good with that, <laughs> you too. You're missing club. out, dude. You gotta join the club, dude. So... <laughs> No. no, I think you're I think you're dead on. And that's that's a good character thing. And yeah, again, I'm going back to my head in nineteen ninety seven. This is Buffy that I'm watching do this, and I'm like, well, that's that's a different thing. That would not be what I would expect Buffy to do. You know, so it's a it's a different thing than what you're you expect as an audience that works for an audience. All the way up through this first act, which I will include everything that happens before one year later, I'm down. I'm like, you know what? This is this is well done. It's well directed. It looks great. Everybody seems to be really into it. We're going somewhere. Like I this first act is is primo for me. Yeah, I I liked it a lot too. I I I won't say I like it as much as you do, but it definitely is uh, attention grabbing and uh arresting for sure. Yeah, I think it was a good first act. Um, it sets up everything that we're going to see going forward. So I think they do a good job of the um, conflict, especially in, in Julie's mind of what's going on here. Um, and then setting up to the fact that uh, they're not really going to speak to each other after this happens. Yeah, everybody goes their separate ways. I wrote in my notes, one year later and now everything sucks. 
Well, yes, wouldn't it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Julie has bad skin, bad grades. Now she gets threatening mail. You know, she's not friends with anybody anymore. Like, really, like, everything has kind of gone sideways for them. And I think that's what we're supposed to get is that the one who is trying to be the moral conscience for the group is the one who's taking it the worst. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's how it would be taken for someone like, I mean, everyone else, I, maybe Ray took it bad too, but we don't really get it, get that uh, over. But you get the feeling like Helen and Barry are just like, man, whatever on with my life. I got the sense that Helen and Barry were more upset with like how maybe disappointing this next chapter of their lives had been versus what they had done last summer. Right. They're more concerned about themselves instead of what happened. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whereas so- it's eating Julie up inside. All right, so the question is, how long did Helen last in New York before she had to come home? I don't think she ever went. I No, no, no. She she went. Like, she said it, it went. It didn't really work out. Like, I think she made it maybe till the beginning of the fall, like a couple of months, and then came back, and now I was working the fragrance counter at the store with that sister who you, likes to play I, a part. Um, I, I get the sense that she never went, and she just says that. You don't even think she made it six months? No, no, I don't. Hey, Brian, you don't even think she went. So nope. Now it was now to be fair, it was a lot cheaper to live in New York in 1996. Can't have been True. that much cheaper. True, but I I got the sense that it would have been one of those. She went up there, and the best thing she could do was sweeping up the floors at the local Metroplex. Much less getting an audition anywhere. You know, you know, small town big star goes to the big city, and she's just one of like five hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's definitely a. Uh, it was that kind of scenario where it, it's weird to say this about uh, Sarah Michelle Geller, but it, Helen, the character, is definitely positioned as like a uh, what was the name of this town? Southport. Yeah, she's a Southport ten, but like a New York seven or yeah. six. Yeah, and then on the talent scale, like way below, like not even close. <laughs> you know, like, she, well, she was. I mean, look, her mousy best friend has to write her cheesy Croker Queen speech. It tells you how much you know skill she's really got. So, yeah, she wasn't even a, a Southport ten on the talent scale. Yeah, she wasn't joining. She wasn't joining an improv troupe and kind of you know working tables at the restaurant next to Ann when she you know when Buffy was in between season two and three. Brian, she wouldn't even have the wherewithal to do that. She just went back home. So, I, so she didn't she, make it long at all. So. So she wasn't like a founding member of like the Upright Citizens Brigade or anything. I, I don't think so. <laughs> now, Brian, I want to hear though your theory why you think she never left though. I just don't think she ever went. I don't know. I don't know why. I just she she shoves, she fluffs it off like oh oh it just didn't work out and that's all we hear of it. So I if she actually went and she's talking to her supposed best friend, you would think she'd be like oh I went there for so long and I tried and I couldn't get a part or a little more than oh it just didn't work out. So I just but, don't feel but, like she ever went and she ended up working at her dad's store instead. But she's also got an image to maintain. Yeah. I don't even think I don't even think she would admit to her best friend that yeah I went to New York but it turns out I suck as an actress and I'm not even soap opera good and they told me my choices were porno or go home so I went home. I don't know. I don't, I I could see it. I think the the point we're supposed to get here is that none of these people have talked to each other since the Fourth of July last year again like they all went their separate ways they wanted nothing to do with you you know barry got probably get the hell out of town the next day and went ahead and just you know rolled into school julie was not far behind him whether hell he had to get his car fixed first yeah well yeah but clearly he had the money (laughs) to get that done ray took off a new one dude he didn't and 
Yeah, right. Well, it's the same model. It's the same 328i. So it's, I don't know. Yeah, he, he just bought a yeah, second He just bought a second right? one. Yeah, I don't know what the, what the family does, but yeah, something. But we, we don't know how long Ray leaves because he doesn't get reintroduced back into the story until a little bit here. But we find out like he didn't exactly go and hang out in Greenwich long either. I That's the one I think never left. And I no, I don't I think can't, he did either. I think he went and yeah. became a fisherman right away. I get jumped on the boat, and I, I'm going to say right now, I'll just blow the whole thing here. I think they screwed up royally not having him be in league with this fisherman guy all along. Is like the long lost son that he didn't know he had, or something like that. Because and then it, this was revenge for the sister that he didn't know he had too, and like the, he wasn't in on this stuff is a missed opportunity for this movie and for this entire story because it makes total sense. If you play it out like that, that would have been great because mm. he could have helped orchestrate half of the magical shit that they have to do <laughs> to, to make this work in the in the second and third act of this movie. And the but, fact that he never leaves would have worked perfectly for that. But of course, they're not going to do that. No, they needed a hero uh, to save the damsel in distress and raise the only one left because they killed off Barry. So who yeah, else he was the rope and Barry's conveniently in the way, by the way. So. You know why he does that? Because he knows how it works, because he spent his summer as a fisherman and now next year. Yeah. So it makes sense that they've set him up as a fisherman to be the hero because he knows how to do all the stuff needed to be done on that boat. And and don't you think it would be a little too obvious to have the guy who like one of his one of his first lines is to talk about how he doesn't know who his father is to have him conveniently be the son of the murder fisherman. Right. Only because only because when they reintroduce him back into the script, he said, you know, prophecy fulfilled, I've become my father. And she says, I thought you didn't know who your dad was. I just knew he worked the boats. Well, you just laid it out there for me. Now, I know, I know that's the red herring. That's Kevin Williamson giving me, you know, a rabbit to chase or whatever. I'm just saying from my point of view, I would have liked it better if the good boy had also been, you know, kind of sinister and the bad guy. Cause those are the real monsters in the world, y'all. Like that's, that's real life. It's the people you don't expect. I don't know, man. I, I didn't expect this Ben Willis guy. Uh, who yeah, the hell is he? He's not really a character. Yeah. He, we don't learn about him until, yeah. We get everybody back a year later, and of course we check in with Julie first. Things are not going well as we, you know, can expect. She gets the threatening letter. You know, which I love. She, she has this terrible dialogue with her mother, like, who sent this? I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. What does it say? Nothing. And then she just runs upstairs. And I'm like, no, you're following the kid at that point. Go, excuse me. Let me see that, please. By the way, you're flunking out of school. I can see your mail now. So um, that <laughs> helicopter parenting didn't get invented in the last 10 years. OK, that's always been y'all. So I, that was weird. But she goes and you know she tries to get Helen's New York number. We go through that whole bit at the, at the store, which I'm glad to hear that in the book, that's still true, that the older sister is just a total bitch to her little sister. Like Bridget Wilson is awful to her in this, in this story. Ilsa is terrible. She is a very jealous because Helen got the looks and everything handed to her and she gets nothing. Okay. So, bad yes, cast. Very Bridget Wilson is gorgeous. <laughs> so well, that yeah, is, that's yeah, fine. She could be Sarah Michelle Gellar's sister. Yeah. yeah that's about terrible. Bridget Wilson is like way more attractive than Sarah Michelle Gellar, especially oh. in this movie. She's also fat in the fatter in the book as well. So yes, okay. they cast a little differently. I was say yeah, the casting is is blown on this. They needed to get someone that did not look like they could have beat Helen in another Croker Queen championship, <laughs> you know, or maybe had been one herself. Like that would have even been better if, if, if she had been had, one like, and then like had gotten over it and Helen didn't get over it. That would have made yeah, some if difference they, if they had had like established that she was like 
a previous Kroger queen, it, ma- it makes a lot more sense to have, you know, Bridget Wilson as the older sister. Yeah, because, I mean, she is awful <laughs> to, to Helen in this movie in every way. And maybe she has some right to be, but I don't know if anybody's that right to be that horrible to, to somebody. I mean, I have an older sibling who is a lot smarter than I am and did a lot more stuff, and he never treated me like that. So, I mean, you know, good grief. It's, I, just don't, I just don't buy that. But it, it's stunt casting. It's Hollywood, whatever. We, we go with it. But it, it's all to set up the fact that, and I think you nailed, hit the nail on the head, Ron, that if Helen is supposed to be playing kind of this battered character, that's not just from Barry. That's everybody in her life. Her dad totally ignores her when she comes in later. Her sister treats her like crap. We don't know where the mom is. We can assume she's gone or passed on or whatever. So Helen is always looking for somebody else to give her validation outside of herself, and she just looks to the wrong people. Now, now my, my brief reading of that scene where – she comes in and her dad is zoning out in front of the TV. Um, is her dad like a hopeless alcoholic? I don't know. I mean, he didn't look like he was asleep and he wasn't watching it wrestling. Like he, he was, was watching baseball. Anything, was he? No, he was just watching baseball. He wasn't watching I wrestling. Was, I thought he was so. drinking while watching baseball, but I'm, I may have had I confused I'm like, the, I look at I may that, have like, implied that. Remember the dad, the, the awful dad that gets killed in the, the greenhouse in Silver Bullet? Like, if her dad mm-hmm. had been like that, then yeah. But I think he was just kind of like had worked hard all day, was just kicking his feet up and drinking a glass of tea and watching the Astros play or whatever. Now, now see, I I guess I had assumed that, like, the dad was a drunk because it seems like uh, Elsa is the one who's running the store. Yeah. You know, I, yeah, we never get the real backstory on why she is. I, it could have been an accident or he's not able to do it anymore. Who knows? But uh they or never really tell us like why. Night shift. <laughs> or <laughs> look, it, it's like every other uh, you know teenage horror movie that was ever made. The the adults don't really matter. Like we're really not paying attention to them. In fact, there's very few of them around this town, and the ones that are here either die or are completely ignorable. Or wear fisherman slickers. This is true. There's there's that one that's homicide. There's like two of them. Okay, Jay, you've been in North Carolina for a while now. And you've been through at least one July 4th. What was the weather like? It's like 95 degrees and 90% humidity. Now, if you went out, now you don't live on the coast, but it would, it's it, going would to be you cooler go, around the coast, by the way? Not that much cooler. At least I've 10 been, degrees. I've been Guys, I looked, I looked it up. I looked it cooler. up. I looked it up for the July. It was 92 degrees in Wilmington. <laughs> so it, it is hot. It is hot here in this. We are in the southeast. It is hot in the summertime. So clearly, this movie was shot in autumn because you see people in jeans. Actually, it was shot in it was shot in the spring when it is actually cool. In March, it can get really cool here, especially and now on the coast. Brian's right; it would be very cool in the spring. That's why that's why Julie is running around with the corduroy jeans in July the fourth at the end of this movie. You see those guys in the parade who are wearing those big rain fisherman slickers? They would be dropping dead in the streets, (laughs) especially the old man that Barry tackles, like the eighty year old man. Exactly that guy. That man would die. Like, Barry killed him. That's what happened to Barry. He went to jail. I'm 37, and I wouldn't wear that out in winter. I said the oh, same I thing. I looked at my wife, and I said, there's no way. She said, I'm the fisherman. What? I said, when they're working the boat, not when they're watching the May Queen parade or what the hell ever. The Kroger Queen. Also, what is what is a croaker? Some sort it's of a fish? fish? It's a fish. It's a fish. Yeah. yeah. Have you, is it delicious? 
I've never I have had not it. had it. You need to get on this, Jay. You're you're I, our correspondent, North Carolina. It's, I need to. I don't. I'm on the other end of this state. I can tell you what Charlotte's like. I can't tell you what the coast is like. <laughs> they've got they've got vans full of ice. They can send you some croakers. This is true. Well, yeah, they barely have ice everywhere. We'll talk about the ice in the boat later. Um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, that boat is but, just an ice boat. That's uh, That's because the bodies are there. Yeah, it's too hot. Like, no one's dressed appropriately. That's because it buries in sweaters all the time, which Ryan Phillippe is like ripped. Now, he may be a little dude. We've kind of called him out for that, but he is absolutely shredded and he could totally kick all of our asses combined. So let's not play off of it. He's, he's fierce dude, but he is wearing like long sweaters and stuff. And I'm like, clearly it was too cold. And they just said, screw it. Nobody's going to care. Cause look, in 1997, I didn't pay attention to what the weather was outside. If somebody told me that's what you wear, wherever the hell that is in movie land, then sure. I'll go with it. It's now that I have a phone that I can dig up <clears throat> that I I know that kind of information from. So I don't know. It's just a it, we're just sort of measling around the plot. But the whole point of this in the second act, and this is what really, uh, Brian, I want to ask you about. Tell me how the it works out in the book too, because this just meanders and drags for me while we're going on this little mini Scooby mission with Helen and Julie to try to find out more information about who David Egan was and all that kind of stuff. All right. Well, in the book, uh, what happens is they, um, Again, it's it's Ray and Julie who decide to go pay a visit to kind of figure out who's sending them. They they believe someone in the family is after them, and so they okay. want to go and and uh, confront them because they want to say, hey, if they recognize who we are, they're going to tell them their names. They actually give their real names in the book, not fake names, but um, they're going to tell them their names and see if they flinch and try to kill them right there because they don't think they'd kill them in the house. Hmm. Okay, whatever. But anyway, so they go there and they talk to the daughter, Missy. They go and visit with her. The parents are away because the mom has not been doing well since uh, the the boy was killed. She's in the hospital. The the dad is with the mom uh, while they recover. So she's there by herself, and they notice a few things like oh, there's men's clothes on the on the line that she's drying and blah blah blah. So they're kind of like doing some kind of a hunt fact finding so, mission to figure it out. So spoiler warning, if we haven't already done that enough for your folks. So in the book, did they actually kill a kid and then try to hide it? Yes. Okay, so that's a big twist where they don't know who they killed here. They just think they killed this David Egan guy. And we Correct. get we get the weird sister, Missy, who thinks he killed himself over grief. And then she talks about this guy that said he went to high school with her brother, that they were sweet to each other for half a second, but then he went away. And we've learned later that's Ray. I, I don't know. It, she... Anne Hash always gives like a very strange performance. I think in everything I've ever seen her in, she's either overly high strung or just really weird. This is very akin to the way she would play the Marion Crane character when they remade Psycho. You know, it's almost the same thing. Ron, did you get that off of her? As an actress, Anne Hash makes weird choices, I think. And my question is. There is a big difference between somebody from the class of 92 and the class of 96. That four right. years of, of growth and development makes a big difference. So she looked at Freddie Prince, the supposed high school student, and, real, and thought, oh, yeah, he's not 18. He's definitely like 24 years old. I mean, if he grew the, he grew the stubble out, maybe he could get there. I don't know. He's so fresh-faced. I don't know. Like, he's, so, the thing, yeah, he's so smooth-faced throughout this whole movie. Yeah. 
the and thing you get just to, to I don't know if that's just the thing where they're trying to cover for the fact they've got a bunch of like twenty five year old high school students. Well, she's she's playing this character, which at this point I think she's like twenty eight or so in real life. So but, she's playing she about that like age, thirty five. But yeah, she looks like she's a she's a one of the family members of like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. You know that she's in a different movie than the rest of these people. And as she described it, two days of work where I just had to be creepy. And I think that's the only direction she got. She just played this so so much in a different film than the rest of them. And. I can see how, though, if she is supposed to be this, like, really naive and kind of backwoods person, that somebody like Freddie Prince Jr. could come in and using his suave, debonair ways, because apparently he's got them, right? Because he did, you know, he did date Julie, that he could, you know, get information out of her and then, you know, he's gone. Now, but my question is, did they, like, date? Did they see each other? For for a half a minute, she said, like I guess a couple of times. Maybe it was worth a dinner. I don't know, man. I don't think uh, they had like this whirlwind romance. I think he just took her out I mean, and was nice to her. My and, guess is they just yeah they just flirted with each other. Because I think I think yeah he like, could bat his eyes at her and then she would tell him things and then he, once he found out what he wanted to do he just disappeared because he was using a fake name anyway and since he's on the boat all the time it's not like she's going to go to town and hunt him down. And he, but he couldn't take her out at all. He had to like come by their house, and that would be the only time he would see her. Because if they went out together in public, this is clearly not a large town. I don't think they did at all. I think she thought there was chemistry between them, and they floated, and that's about it. We should mention too that what has got him on this goose chase is the fact that Barry got run over in his maybe his new BMW, maybe the repaired BMW. We don't know because he goes on his boxing workout. And we get the death of Max at the docks because he gets the big hook through the the chin, which is a bloody spot. I will agree that that's one of the the bloody spots in the film. One of the two. Yeah, one of the two. That and the the Ilsa kill later on. There's uh, there's this whole setup right where the fisherman is standing over Barry, and my question to you two is why does he not kill him then? Great question. I, that was what I was thinking too. Is why why let him live? Number one, unless he thought he was dead, but he looked up at him, right? So he knew he was alive. Uh, why not do it there unless he wanted him to go back and tell everybody that someone was after them? But I think that we've already established that. Yeah, but he doesn't. That's the thing. Like he just says, well, like, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah, well, so, yeah, I don't know what I saw. Like, it, yeah, if he had served an actual purpose, yes. But all he does is sort of be nice to Helen again when he's like playing her enforcer bodyguard later. But I don't think they get back together or anything. So I don't know why yeah. they let him live. My assumption was they let him live to get all four of them in the same environment to make it like less lake work for him to kill them all. But they so. never do. Yeah, it's only two and mm. two. Like that's the best he could get yeah. is two of them together at the same time. So well, nobody said he was good at this plan. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean he's an older man too. We should be nice to poor. He's, a, he's an older man. He's a fisherman. That's really hard on the body. Yeah, you know he he's not uh he's no Barry or Ray. He's not a spring chicken type this of guy. I mean, Muse Watson, who a lot of people know now for all the TV stuff he's done. And uh, if you watched Prison Break, he was maybe or maybe not D.B. Cooper on that show, which was a lot of fun to see. Uh, he was in his late 40s here. It wasn't like he was ancient. But when I was 18, 19, 20, 47 was like, forget that. Now I'm staring down the barrel of it coming at me. And I'm like, oh, it's not really that old. But yeah, <laughs> so yeah, he doesn't. He, all he does is get them two and two. I guess maybe he wants to kill him in a public place. I don't know. It, that to me, like. In good slasher movie following, you do the pickoff, right? 
and it's one at a time, and they just start falling. So Barry going first makes sense because one, he's an asshole, and two, he's kind of asking for it. I mean, he's a huge jerk to everybody. Well, and he's the you know. main guy who really did the most damage to the dude, right? I mean, he he was attacked by him, threw him in the water anyway, then went back in there to get the crown, saw him that he was alive, and left yeah. him to die. Exactly. So, Does, doesn't yeah. he also... Doesn't he also, and I may have imagined this uh, to make myself a better movie, doesn't he also bludgeon him with a flashlight a couple of times? I, I don't remember that at I all. I don't remember that at so, all. Yeah, either. I don't think he ever gets a punch in. He just talks a lot of trash and gets run over by his own car, and then he's kind of whimpering while the hook's standing over him, and he wakes up in the hospital. Oh, right. I thought I thought he whacked him a few times on the dock when um, the fisherman wakes up. Oh, that's that's Ray. It gets to do yeah, that later. Guy. Yeah. Barry, oh, that's right. Barry never gets a good shot in on him. So this is also, okay. though, to, I mean, it, we're supposed to be thinking we don't if we don't know who this is. Right. It could be Max still. Right. But now we've just seen Max killed. So it's obviously not Max. So if we think it's Barry, well, it's not going to be Barry because he can't run over himself. So because we didn't invent the self-driving car at that point. Right. So and Barry would have had one if we'd had one. So, <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't do that. So it, it's it could it be Ray. Could it be? You know, we don't know. Right. Those are our our red herrings it could be ilsa who looked real spooky under a restroom sign at the you know the uh department store or whatever but nobody believes that and so it you know we don't know but i i just again it's one of the things that i just I, it's a road bump i hit in the second act of this movie where i realized like they, they missed that one like they should have killed it because it doesn't do anything the rest of the movie like it doesn't serve any purpose for him to you know show up again and chase an old man down a dock who shouldn't be wearing a slicker on the fourth of july like we've established so, but we do all this, though, because that, that does send the two girls on the goose chase, right? They come back. Well, later on, Julie's driving around, and she hears something moving around the back of the car. She didn't know what. She pops up in the trunk on that good old Dodge Aries, and there's Max and a bunch of crabs and ice all in her trunk. And have either of you fellas, like, hauled seafood in a cooler in a car before? Nope. Not living seafood. <laughs> oh, uh, well, not living. Dead living otherwise. There is a, just an odor that goes with it. That's just part of it that you, for, you, you're thankful for breeze was invented for. What happens is Julie <laughs> sees this. She runs. She gets everybody gathered around to open up the car trunk. Not only is the trunk not smelling of crabs, fish, and dead person, it is pristine. It is gorgeous. And there's there's no like hint of plastic. I'm like the logistics that this old man fisherman, he, he's got a little bit of strength because he can pull off like Houdini shit here. Not only there, but when he kills Barry, too, there's not a drop of blood. Well, I take that back. There's a drop of blood left behind, but he just slaughtered a guy, yeah. numerous, numerous cuts, and not not a drop of blood on the ground where he killed this guy. So he must have laid down some real good plastic there to catch everything before he decided to slash him. Maybe they're just establishing that uh, her car stinks all the time. So, <laughs> or really that she don't. has hallucinations. It, it is her mom's car, we should say, because she does hitch a ride home with like the one African-American person in this movie who's her roommate that's in it for like five seconds and drives her from Boston to there before going to wherever she's from. And so she's driving her mom's car. Maybe her mom like is chain-smoking salmon in the trunk. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> chain smoking salmon sounds like it could have been a good salmon. late 90s band by the way so <laughs> chain smoking salmon that's yeah that's your indie band so <laughs> uh you know maybe they're setting up that she's hallucinating 
that's what they're trying to play it off as. Because you get the great, you know, what are you waiting for line. And I honestly am saying, I'm asking the same thing, Jennifer Love Hewitt. What are we waiting for? Let's get on with this movie. Because this movie's an hour and 45 minutes long. And it doesn't need to be. Like, it's, it's dragging right now. For me, guys, like, I'm really legitimately bored. Both times I rewatched this for this review, I had to make myself put my phone down because I was legitimately getting bored at what was happening. Yeah, I, I kind of zoned out, obviously. <laughs> I watched every second. Were you invested every second? Absolutely. Okay, so let's let's get into it then. Let's get to the third act because the second act drags on forever, right? We we do get a good scare with with Hella though. I do like the fact that he chops off her hair in the middle of the night as a way to freak her out because that's obviously like her superpower is her hair. Because her sister, Allah, the Godfather. On her. Yeah, right. It's it's the horse in the bed moment, but not nearly as bloody or effective. But it kind of works because Sarah Michelle Gellar has a good scream, and it's it's a freak out moment for sure. And she finds some good wigs because she doesn't look like she had any hair cut off after they. They go to the uh, dude. Dolly Parton is like doing hair in that town, like in Still Magnolias too. Like she went straight to that woman's house and got that stuff fixed. So. I thought she just went and got a like a a nice Rachel haircut or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian, Maybe. you and I called this out on the beginning of season two of Buffy. We called yeah. this. I know what she did let summer hair because it is her true. shorter hair. I feel like it would have been funny if the killer had left like a croaker wrapped in newspaper with her hair, like right in the bed. Or stuck it on the, like one of the points of the crown, like a dead fish or something. Yeah. Yeah, like a like a mafia message. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's let's just go full on with this thing. Well, they were ready to make that kind of bloody movie, but they should have been because it would have been so much better. So. Yeah. Was this uh, was this this was PG thirteen? No, right? this is rated R. It's rated it's R, R because of all the language and the uh, the violence. But uh, it really, the language, one, they, they drop a lot of F-bombs in here. And by the number, 90s, yeah, man, I was that, say, you, you couldn't what do language that. or uh, what violence? Because you could have cut the language out. Yeah. If you cut the language out, this would have been a PG-13. Oh, and I think they did that so that they wouldn't get that. I think they wanted this to be. Scream was an R. They wanted this to be an R rating because. So let's have some more blood. Let's have some more blood. I agree because stylistically it would have made sense. But the director disagrees with this. He thinks it makes it classier to not do the over the top blood. And I argue that we've got a lot of dead mannequin bodies, which, by the way, the Johnny Galecki dummy in the ice, the first of three that do not look anything like the character they were supposed to look like that was murdered before. It's it's bad. Yeah, those are pretty bad. Yeah. So the the Helen and Barry at the end are not, not modeled on none of those people. So yeah. they're like the CPR dummy. So they're dressed up to be murder victims. That's bad. So Yeah, there's a reason this guy only directed six movies. Right. So uh, yeah, whatever. They got him cheap. Whatever. So logistical problems aside now, we've now split our people up into two. All right. So Helen and Barry are palling around at the parade, right? Because Barry's you're gonna watch her and he's gonna watch her pass her crown along or something because it's a tradition. Yeah, she she has to be in the parade as the, the reigning croaker queen and Barry is apparently her bodyguard. Right. He's just sitting in front of the float, you know, like a thug, you know, for no reason whatsoever, with a cast on his arm. You know, so so much good he can do. Wait, but, by the no, way, his no. scholarship is gone. His coach is just you're in the transfer portal, Barry. Goodbye. So. <laughs> doesn't he? Doesn't he hit Ray with his cast earlier in the movie? Yeah, they get in a fight. Yeah, it, it looks like he he straight up cowboy Bob Orton's him in the face with the cast. 
Well, he maybe, does. Yeah. yeah, maybe that's his new. Uh, maybe that's his new thing. Is he's going to go into wrestling in the Carolinas? He's not far away from where he needed to be to yeah. do it. Well, so. here's the thing. Have either of you ever broken your arm? Oh yes. No. Now, does it hurt? Did it hurt when you hit your cast on something like I, dude, someone's I, face? I could roll over in bed at night and it hurt. Right? Because it was my wrist and my whole cast was done. Any pressure on that thing hurt. It just it hurt. But, but you know, I'm not made out of steel like Ryan Phillippe apparently is. So, you know. Yeah, you're not the indestruct- indestructible five foot eight cyborg. I know, right? <laughs> well, I mean, he's got to be indestructible. He's playing college football at that size. So, or kickboxing <laughs> or whatever the hell he's doing. So, <laughs> but that's the whole point. But we, we, we get that going on. Barry and, and Helen are getting chased around. Uh, Julie's also gone back to Missy because we got to get Ann Hesh's second scene in this movie or else it's just a cameo. And she's going to start putting more of it together. This is before like the internet was really a thing, right? Like we couldn't, you had to do like microfiche to search old newspapers and stuff or look at old clippings. She, she got on the Lexus Nexus. <laughs> when it was a real the internet was there. I mean, she used it in the, in the movie, but yeah, not very um, well. So. Well, I mean, back then, what did you have? You had Netscape Navigator. I was going to say, yeah, the, for what yeah. it was, it was fine. It's She she dialed up to AOL. Yes. She got in the chat room. You know, I'm only going to say, guys, a year before, Jeff Goldblum took down an alien invasion with a Mac laptop and a cell phone. So we were there. We were in that age. So. <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. Windows 98 had just come out, or hadn't come out yet, so we were still on 95, crashing with blue screens constantly. Yeah, it was a good time. <laughs> that would have been great if she like, was on like, a good article about who Ben Willis was, and then the Tampa Bay <laughs> Blue screen to death. Because <laughs> everyone, everyone could have related, right? So. <sighs> then, yeah. <laughs> good time. Or the little... Uh... The little frowny face Apple computer. <laughs> yeah, it's it. It doesn't do the reboot. Yeah. She's printed out on dot matrix, eleven by seventeen green bar or something. But yeah. So, so anyway, she's she's doing the Scooby mystery while Helen and Barry are getting killed, and a lot of other people are getting killed too. So El- Elsa gets killed. This is a reshoot where they have to have the blood on the window because Gillespie just turned it in with just the slash, and she falls down. And the studio is like, "Where's all the blood? He hit her in the neck, you know." So he had to go all back right. and reshoot it. And so we, 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 you know, Helen gets killed behind a bunch of tires, which, you know, I'll be honest, in 1997, that was a shocking way to see Buffy go down. It wasn't what I expected. It's literally all, like her and Ryan Phillippe, though, are killed off screen almost. Like you see inset shots of their face, but you never see them actually getting hacked. Nowadays, like people's heads would be coming off and stuff. Yeah, which was disappointing to me. I really wanted to see both of them just like get, I wanted to see like entrails. Well, yeah, the pretty My people. You want, I mean, in Scream, we had seen them cut to ribbons. Like, you wanted to see that. We had seen Drew, Mer- Drew Barrymore, you know, gutted from a tree, basically, a year before. Why can't we, you know, cut these people up? Yeah, and you you've, you spent $17 million on this movie, and I know $10 million of it went to Kevin Williamson, and that's fine, but you've got $7 million. You can't buy some, like, sheep intestines? Something. Need something to go here because it, again, it, they're killed off screen. It's almost like they're inconsequential. Which again, I remember Helen getting killed again. I thought Barry had been dead, and I thought, oh no, wait, she saw him murdered. He's not there. Then she gets killed because we have the random cop get killed too. Because this guy has set up this elaborate trap because he knows this cop's going to try to go down this road. So I got to put up the police barricade here so he'll go down this street so I can you know block it off. And then that's when I'll get her. You know, like well, well, wicked to be elaborate. Fair, to be fair to the fisherman. That road was blocked off for the parade. 
true, but the fact that he can figure out the route that they're taking her out of there. By the way, I know cops. They take you out the back way possible. Like, they're not going down any main drag because they're getting you out of town fast. Also, they don't stop for Jack. When you've got somebody else in your car, you don't stop. You radio that into somebody else. Well, and if you're not under arrest, the cop doesn't typically put you in the backseat. Yeah, that's the other thing, too. Why is she locked up? (laughs) (laughs) She should have been in the front seat next to him. And how the hell did she get out? Did we ever see that? I think the window. She kicks out the window. Yeah, she kicks out the window. Yeah, so she does, like, that's the thing is Helen shows, like, strength here that she later just completely loses. Though I think there's a, they're supposed to be led to believe she gets a couple shots in on the guy while they're fighting behind the tires, but I mean, you don't see anything, so how do you know? Because it's all yeah. backlit by those damn fireworks. Oh, that's the point. She's getting killed in basically broad nightlight. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and nobody's noticing because there's fireworks. There's she's a parade all going stabbed. by. No, no one noticed. Well, she's the outgoing croaker queen. They're done with her. They've already crowned another one. You know, she, well, she, the scene. She, she had to give her crown back for freaking out and, and ruining the whole <laughs> yeah, pageant. She, she ruined the pageant. That was the la- the lasting memory of her. Like her old bit would be like Helen, who ruined the pageant before being bludgeoned to death in a backyard alley. But so, at least she cut off that terrible song. She did cut off. Well, that song was bad though. That, but you know what? Having having judged a few pageants in my day, boys, I'm going to tell you that brought back like flashback memories. I was there. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. Anyway, um, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. So, <laughs> to pull my Forrest Gump line of the of the show out. So we find out what's going on here. Julie runs in. She meets up with Ray. She's trying to information dump on him, and then that's when she realizes, oh, your boat's named Billy Blue. You're the guy. You've been two timing around with Missy or whatever. And that's when Ben Willis, Muse Watson steps out of the back and knocks him cold and the easy child. If somebody ever says that to you in that voice, by the way, run the hell the other way. That is not somebody who wants to help you. <laughs> and no, just so happens to be there to put his arm out to knock the crap out of Ray. You know, yeah. He convenient. teleported like 10 city blocks to get over there to do that, by the way. Well, we don't know how much time has passed. Well, he's got that Jason Voorhees travel plan. Uh, seriously. There you go. He's tapped into... Uh, that's what I'm... Like, the whole he's thing is, he, he's alive, oh, but it would have almost been better if they'd just gone full Voorhees with this and been like, he had come back from the dead like a true Scooby villain or something. You know, but as it turns out, he is a true Scooby villain because he's just an old man in the mask. He needed more scars, though. Something, he, right? He did Especially have, he did with have the, like a, the way his face scars. was mutilated from the car wreck. Yeah, he did have some scars, but like... He needs to be like deformed. Like yeah. he needs to be like castle free. Yeah, some like he but he keeps that thing pulled up around his face because when you pull it back, it's like, ooh, you can't do that, right? But yeah, you know, he, he, just, he needs to be like a real phantom of the opera type. Yeah, he he looks like he honestly he looks like a dude that's just, you know, spent a lot of evenings at the bar after working hard on the boat for twenty five years or something like that. He doesn't really look that hard living. So I I don't know. Yeah, he's the kind of guy who hangs out at the bar from Roadhouse. Exactly right. Yeah, and he sweeps up the the eyeballs at the end of the night. Of course, Julie gets on the boat with him because that's what you do at the end of these dumb movies. And he has so conveniently laid out for her all the information she needs. He doesn't even have to confess to her like good Bond villains do. It's here's my slicker. Here's all the stuff where I've been stalking all through the newspaper for the last year or so and setting all of this up. And here's this little charm. Let me fling it one time for you so you know it's me. And my question is, he does that thing, and I'm like, does she know what that's supposed to signify? Like, we do as an audience, but how the hell does she know what that is? Yeah, I don't think she could. That doesn't make any sense, but she never saw it. 
she didn't know who this Egan guy was beforehand or what that stupid little thing meant to him. So yeah, I don't get it. it it's just for a, it's for our benefit, not for her benefit. It's got to be to to point out that he has a connection to the to Egan. Hence the uh, serial killer hunting detective bulletin board. Right. I mean, it would be like if you had caught up with Norman Bates years later and like hit out all of his wall of fame, you know, of all of his murder or something like that, you know, for you, for you just conveniently know, or if Jason like opened up a scrapbook of like, here's last year's campers that I murdered. Here's your sister. Sorry about that. You know, if he was talking to the guy in part four, you know, it's, (laughs) it's funny that you mentioned Norman Bates after we discussed in Haitian, the psycho remake. Right? I think it was just on the brain again, because I thought about that horrible movie and how horribly this movie is going at the end for me. Would this movie have been better if the killer in the raincoat had been Vince Vaughn? Uh, maybe. <laughs> Dodgeball Vince Vaughn? <laughs> that would have been that would have kind of been awesome, actually. Now that you say Vince Vaughn would have been a better Ray than Freddie Prince Jr. is here. I'm going to say that right now, because, wow. <laughs> Least yeah, but Vince Vaughn would be a foot taller than Ryan Phillips. Yeah, Vince Vaughn's six five, so he's really tall. So yeah, that's, that's why I thought it would be better to make him the killer, so that way the right? dude in the uh, yeah, that way the dude in the galoshes is like you know a giant. Well, I mean, like that that person changes. It's a different person every time they do the stunt. I swear. Like, they're varied sizes, and that is purposely done so that you don't know who the killer is the first time around. I mean, he's watching his bad average height. I mean, he's probably, you know, maybe six feet tall or so. It's, he's not that big of a dude. He's not imposing, necessarily, but he looks fierce because he is kind of lean and tough, and he looks grizzled, right? That's the whole point. But the, if you watch this movie again, the fisherman is always a different height because it's a different person doing it every damn time. So, and they knew that. They did that on purpose, they say. But I'm like, was this person able to shrink? And, you know, he's got magical transportation powers, so, and he can make crabs and ice and people disappear out of trunks in like five minutes so sure i guess so Uh, but we get the big fight in the end and i've been on a fishing boat even a commercial fishing boat and the one thing like even if they're a little larger than maybe you think they are the hull's a little deeper and stuff guys but one thing they're not full of boats are not full of a lot of space because space is a problem on a boat because that's somewhere where water can get so everything is like nooks and crannies on boats and stuff. I don't know if y'all spend any time on it or not, but I was blown away by like how freaking battleship huge this boat was all of a sudden. I've actually been on like a deep sea fishing boat where we went out uh, off the coast of Florida for fishing. And you're right. There was, there was no barn full of ice in the bottom of the boat. Because it, it's literally like she falls into a barn. Because yeah. it is like She's got like 12 feet of space over her head. She's there's like a ton of ice, literally. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It is. It's also not refrigerated in any way. So my wife was the one that picked up on this. She said, you know how that's like glass beads and not ice? And I I said, well, besides the fact that that would be impractical. She said, yeah, but that girl's clothes don't get wet. She's like, you get around that kind of ice and you start piling through it like that. It's going to get wet. Like she's just you know flipping through it like it's no big deal. And I was like, good point. I had thought about that. Like, but it's it's an enormous amount of ice because we're supposed to believe he's hidden these two bodies here for her conveniently to be able to find the bad mannequins of them dead. Yeah, and the, those mannequin faces are terrible. Terrible. Brian, are you still going with this at this point? Because like, Ron and I have clearly turned on the movie at this point, like the way that the fisherman has turned on Julie here. Are you still like digging the suspense of this, or are, are we killing your, your dream here? 
you're not killing my dream. I'm just having fun with this movie. You you guys apparently don't want to have fun with this movie, so that's cool. <laughs> I don't care. If you don't want to just enjoy the movie for what it is and you want to pick apart the movie, go for it, man. But I just sit back and enjoy the movie for what it is because I have just emotional attachments to this movie. It's good. Well, that's great, Brian. <laughs> I'm glad you're still able to go with it. We get this elaborate chase going with it. And, of course, like every good bad Bond villain, I, I said before, he, he laid it out for her. He didn't have to talk to her. Now he's going to decide, I'm going to talk to you a lot before I kill you. And conveniently, the ropes are above him. And I will give you credit for one thing, Brad. You, you pointed out something earlier on that I had not thought of. Is He gets his hand kind of caught up in some of the ropes, that are some of the rigging of this. And Ray knows immediately which one to pull because of his fisherman background. Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's really why he's there, is to be the yeah. hero of the day for Julie James. And because he knows his way around the boats, where she has no flipping clue what she's doing on there. So, um, I mean, he becomes an action hero at the end of this. He gets knocked off that boat twice. Yeah, you kind of expected him to like yeah. tell her to grab on and, you know, Luke Skywalker, Leia her across the, onto shore afterwards, right? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Might as well have. So, I mean, they, <laughs> they both have right? a great knowing look after <laughs> after Muse Watson goes on a little little ride there and gets his fake hand chopped off and then dumped into the drink. That the, Do you have any idea why this man would want to kill you? Nope, none whatsoever. Okay, well, that'll okay, wrap that up. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. No, I think and we're going to go downtown like, and talk. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah, no, no we're going to go downtown and talk a lot about, about that. That's <laughs> My yeah. question is, um, you know, he survived being thrown in the drink last time. Why would you not want to make sure he was there dead? Right? Thank you for at least calling that out. Because at this point, it'd be like, no, we, we're going to troll it. You know how to run this boat? Put the net down. We're fishing that up before we go <laughs> right? and call the cops. At least capture him, right? Something, right? So, I mean, the man the cops just don't seem him. worried. They're just like, whatever. I know, yeah, because they just find hooks with hands and people murdered by hooks all over town all the time, right? Like, they hadn't put that together yet, I guess. Yes, yeah, so they're like, yeah, he must have died from that fall. So we don't need to search for him. We don't it's need to catch It's a reasonable expectation, to be fair. It's a reasonable expectation. But <laughs> there's a lot of other unanswered questions here that I, I would like the law enforcement to be a little more involved, maybe. But that, I'm, I'm putting way too much realism in this. I will, I will cop to that right now. I'm asking for something this movie is not built to do. Fine. I'm good with that. I, I will give them credit for, again, screenwriting one-on-one. -on -one. We've set up Boat Guy knows boats. Boat things happen. He does boat thing to kill the boat guy. There we go. I guess. Yeah. But I'm with you on the fact that they should have at least tried to find the body or arrest the dude. Because they, they did find dead people in there. Hello. What, what did you make of the whole bit where... He, Ray and Julie have this whole bit where he has to tell her, like, you're the only one that gets me. You're the only one that understands me. This is why I love you. I was, again, going, like, this is where I need him to, you know, somewhere another paperclip rolls by, like, Fisherman and Son reunite after decades apart. So we can know, like, he was doing the Valentine thing or something, Brian. The Valentine thing. Oh, God. Um, you, you know, here's the thing. Like, um, in the book, they are you know boyfriend girlfriend for a long time he has feelings for her she wants nothing to do with him after the fact that he sides with helen and barry when they make the quote-unquote pact not to talk about the event and not to go to cops so she starts seeing someone else and he's completely jealous of it and uh that someone else um yeah if you read the book you'll know but um 
yeah, they don't. It's not the same thing. They don't necessarily become boyfriend girlfriend again after after all this trauma. Right. But apparently, in the movie, they do. Yeah, you know, they they go yeah. from horrible trauma, can't even talk to each other anymore, to more horrible trauma, to they're having phone sex at the end of this movie. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. now, now, Brent, I'm not going to read the book. There, okay. There's no way. So, does the guy she ended up dating, is that Ben Willis? Is Ben Willis is nobody in the book. There is oh. no Ben Willis in the book. What happens? Okay, do you, do you want me to spoil it? Yes, spoil it. Okay. Yeah, man, so, I'm sorry. The book is from 1970-something, so if you haven't read it, pause this and go somewhere else and read it and then come back. I'll tell you this. The book is a lot better than the movie. Uh um, regardless of how much I like it, the book is a lot better than the movie. What in the book, uh, what happens is um, Julie is dating this guy. Um, I can't forget what his nick. I forget what his nickname is now. Bud. Uh, this guy Bud sounds like an old man, and they portray him like he's some old man. He acts like an old man, whatever. And uh, Helen is living in this nice apartment area because she has become like this rising star, they call it, for winning some pageantry or something. And so she's on the news and doing all this stuff. And this guy named um, Kali moves in uh, next door and he's got the hots for her. But she's dating Barry still, right? Only Barry's banging chicks left and right, so he doesn't give a damn. But um, Barry ends up getting... uh, you know, assaulted and stabbed and all sorts of stuff. He ends up in the hospital. Or he gets, I'm sorry, he gets shot through the spine. So he ends up in the hospital. Uh, his parents think that Helen is responsible for calling Barry out where he gets uh, shot. Anyway, uh, what ends up happening is the collie is Bud, and Bud is trying to date both Helen and Julie so that he can murder them. Wow. Hmm. So he's the guy. He's what? a half. He's a half brother, I think, of the kid uh, who gets killed. Okay, so that, he's the half brother like who gets killed. Okay, that sounds like a much better movie. I know. Like yeah, I, I don't see know why they now. didn't go with that, but yeah, yeah. It, it's a great book. I, I really enjoyed it. I I might have to actually read that now that you. I've got that. some audible credits. I'm I'm on board. Yeah, it's I, only I, it's only a, it's under six hours of of time, so the book is only like six hours long. Yeah, it's a short book, so it's it's kind of like a Stir of Echoes. Was it's a really short story. I mean, I've have like I say, I've got it on my Kindle. I've just never bothered to read through, but it's I think it's less than two hundred pages or something. So, um, good YA novels don't have to be these epic things for thousands of pages. Stephanie Meyer looking at you, but anyway, <laughs> and Veronica Roth and everybody else. But anyway, well, we're at the end, so we we I do want to talk about that last scene that gets tacked on here because that that again was shot much later. It actually shot next door to Party of Five. In California, so lucky. Luckily, Julie and that character had the same exact hair uh, because we get her in a towel <laughs> and we have this steamy shower thing. Like she's supposed to get an email in the original version that says "I still know" and then it cuts to black. But they thought that wouldn't be scary to anybody um, in 1997, and they were right. I don't know that the steamy shower and the guy Jason Voorheesing through the window works either. Like it just sort of ends. It's just a jump end. It is a bizarre end, but we, you know when they do that, they're setting up for a sequel. So I guess that's where we're going with here. So, But it, but they it does seem a little strange. But they could have stopped with just the I still know uh, written in the shower and skipped the whole Jason Voorhees jump scare. I guarantee you that she was signed on for more than just the one movie, even back then. They, surely they had a sequel clause. 
I agree, because now you got to pay it off, right? When you come into right. the next movie, how does she survive that? Let's do what we <laughs> always do here at the end of Film Strip. Final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings. Brian, we'll start with yours. I love this movie. I don't know why. Um, obviously, it has its flaws, um, but I don't know. Maybe it's just because I have such tied memories to my wife and I with this movie that I just like it so much. Could be. Um, we we both watched it for the first time together in college, and um, we watch it quite often, actually, at least once a year. So I guess I just really like it. So for me, it's a, it's a large popcorn because I really like this movie. Ron? I'm on the border between a small and a medium popcorn. It's not really the quality of a medium popcorn, but it's it's inching close to that uh, so stupid it's fun sort of territory. The first act is great, and the third act is ridiculous, but that second act just kind of drags the whole thing down. So I'm going to go with a, probably a small popcorn. It's fine. My wife was really excited to see me watching it when she came home from work, <laughs> but uh, she was more excited about it than I was. <laughs> Let's be fair, that's probably never happened in your entire run on film strip that Holly's walked in and been excited about something I've made you watch. So, <laughs> so except maybe the room. So watch was excited about that. I, you know, I've also realized too once again that both of you are married to women named Holly, and this gets really confusing for me. So um, <laughs> anyway. Well, Rachel was totally down to watch it with me, just so everybody knows. So maybe they should do a side podcast and talk about everything we didn't. But for me, man, like I, I said it before and I'll say it again. The first act of this is awesome. It is fun. I, it's everything I remember about the movie. Everything I have forgotten about it is all the stuff I hate. And it's the draggy second act and it's the totally ridiculous third act. And I realize at some point these movies all have a little bit of ridiculous to them. But like Friday the 13th earns ridiculous. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it does. This one doesn't in my book. And it's a disappointment because you've actually got good actors here. All of these people still work and are still doing things in entertainment. Freddie Prince has pretty much walked away from acting at this point, but he's a lot of production, does a lot of writing stuff. Sarah Michelle's still active. Jennifer Love Hewitt's still active. Ryan Phillippe was in a movie last year. So, I mean, they're still working. You know, Johnny Glick, he's still working. All these people are working somewhere. So you've got a good cast, and you've got a great writer here. Williamson does good stuff, and this just falls apart. And now having heard what the book was that it was based off of, holy cow, they really blew it. And I already said I thought they blew it when they didn't make Ray part of the the whole plot and complex for the end, because I thought that would have been a, a more fun ending. Maybe it's a little you know, too tropey, but I think this invents the tropes. This is just disappointing for me to, to go back to something that I remember kind of liking, but mm, wasn't on my high mark. When I saw it back in 97 and now to realize just how badly it falls apart and it just doesn't hold up. It's not even dumb fun for me. So I got to give it a small popcorn as well. Well, it's been a lot of fun talking about this. This movie wasn't that great, but it's a lot of fun talking to you guys about it as always here on Filmstrip. So tell folks how they can follow the other things that you guys do on the internet. Ron, how can people follow your writing? You can catch me on denofgeek.com and denofgeek.us. Uh, generally writing about uh, genre television. So fun stuff there. Yeah, you can follow me on Brian's Vinyl Records on YouTube, on podcasting, on Instagram, on Facebook. 
uh, all of them Brian's Vinyl Records there, and my Twitter is at Brian's Vinyl Rec. And of course, folks, you can follow the show at Filmstrip Pod on Twitter or search Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook to connect with us there. We really appreciate you joining us on this latest episode. You go to filmstrippodcast.com, you'll see the archives of the entire podcast and where you can download it. We would appreciate it if you'd share the show and leave us a review. It helps other people find it. We appreciate the support. Until next time, for Brian and Ron, I'm Jay. We know you've been listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.